to uh, fellow survivors who have tuned in or downloaded the podcast. I would beg to differ that despite forgetting once it was our Lord. I think our Lord is Sam Rockwell, and you know it. No, um, uh, <laughs> he is, I think he is the show's favorite actor, so I think he deserves the yeah. he deserves the part. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting day if you're if you're a a political junkie like we are on the show. Uh-huh. It looks like in the United States, it's been a fairly interesting election result. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're almost within two weeks of uh, being in the post-Trump era. Um, and that's going to be fun. It's going to be an enjoyable couple of weeks from here on in. And they're already talking about the post-Trump era of presidential film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we were talking about it weeks and weeks ago about what, what that landscape could potentially look like. Again, we are trendsetters. Well, I mean, your first Joe Blow... Next is the Guardian, you know. It's <laughs> next. It's it's the next. <laughs> next thing you know, it's going to be bloody. Ain't it cool news? Is that still up? Is that website still there? It is still a thing. I know there was some kind of consp- uh, like uh, hubbub and problem with Harry Knowles or something. Like I think he got embroiled in the Me Too movement in some way or something. I don't that know. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It's still a very ugly website. It is still there. But that was kind of the, the first big online movie mm-hmm. thing. I remember that um, they gave a shit review to Rollerball, I think, back in the early 2000s, John McTiernan. Oh, Rollerball. yeah. And, like, I think Harry Knowles actually got consulted by John McTiernan, like, called him and tried to fight him or something. Or There was, there was something like that. And I know that um... – I think he was one of the guys that got challenged by Uwe Boll for the boxing yes. tournament thing. Um, and they got so so big for a while. This is going back to early days of movie news and rumours, ladies and gentlemen, on the internet. Um, Harry Knowles was actually a big proponent for back in the early 2000s for trying to get John Carter made into a movie. And he actually got um, brought on as a... Um, as a consult for um, when John Favreau was going to be doing it. And that was a weird alternative version where they tried to make it a modern day thing, but they couldn't quite work out how a Cavalierman would equate in modern society and things. It's an interesting story about what if, and just this uh, rise of this very ugly, very minimal website that, you I recommend it really if, if you want a bit of a, a trip back into the past, do look at Ain't It Cool, um, one word. Um, we're showing our age here, but this was actually a very influential mm. website. It's like if you think of what Rotten Tomatoes kind of is today, but, like, people send in death threats when they give a Star Wars film with bad reviews. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but back then, the director was, like, cool. I think I mean, I can't confirm it, but I, I remember hearing, here we go, Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool News was invited by John McTiernan on a test screening of a film, Rollerball 2002, on Long Island sometime after the first test screening. And in his review of McTiernan's original cut, Noel said that the movie is bad, but at least it's unapologetically hard R film with lots of nudity and some really brutal violence and rollerball scenes. But even as a work print, it was obvious how bad the action scenes were edited and the story was bad. The rollerball edit I saw was one of the worst films I'd seen in my life. <laughs> in the theatre, Noel said. Knowles was also one of the people who read the original first draft of the script that McKinnon rejected and that it was an amazing script who solved all the problems of the original film. So, like, 
this is the early 2000s. He was getting invited to, you know, mm-hmm. um, how do we get to any cool news? It's not what we're supposed to be talking know. about. I don't know. Um, That's our thing. We get distracted and we don't know how we got here. Turn into an internet history lesson. <laughs> yeah, um, it's anyway. It's an it's an interesting piece of film history, but it was sort of the 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 the, the vanguard of what websites are today, really. Yeah, pretty much. It certainly set the tone, I think, for what um, the alternative tone for movie reviews and TV show reviews compared to the likes of the uh, like the Premiere magazine and the Guardian and those kind of higher brow, more um, kind of, I guess, academic almost. Yeah, yeah, kind of Oscar equivalent stories where these were much more kind of written by fans for fans and you get that fandom and the almost conversational kind of style of it. It was kind of a bit of a birthplace of like the written form of a podcast in some ways. They'd just talk about it and you, they'd, there'd be moments where you're reading through a review of something. So like, I, I've digressed. I'm talking about another movie in this review. Let me get back on track. And it was sort of like, you wouldn't get yeah. that in, in any other highbrow. It wasn't, um, Roger Ebert, you know, as yeah, exactly. academic guys who were talking about camera yeah. work and mise en scene and, you know, like these are us, the, the shitbags of a world who, who liked hard R films with yeah. nudity and, and ultraviolence, right? And, yeah, um, that's where it's all really cool. <laughs> this week, though, we uh, we got a stack show, and I think that this show, show is going to be a choice one mm. for the first um uh, one off the rank this year. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, this week's chain film, Girl Fight, which mm-hmm. we managed to find a copy of, not entirely legally, but hey, you don't want to offer it. You don't want to offer it. Well, that's not my problem. But we did actually. I can say personally, I've seen two legal films this week, but we should both have seen this week. Um, mm-hmm. that are new releases. Remember yeah. new releases? They were a thing once upon a time. Yeah. Um, Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. Um, and of course, the new Pixar film Soul, which went straight to Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. So it's actually going to be interesting. But for once, we've actually seen three the of the same, same movies, films, which is a, a little bit out of the uh, out of out of a norm. So mm. should we crack on and talk about Girl Fight? I think we should. Yeah. So when was the first time you watched Girl Fight, Trav? It probably would have been twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, it had a, it was it was one of those indie films that was doing the rounds mm. at the time. Had a bit of a reputation. It did really well at one of those big film festivals, you know, South by Southwest or yeah, um, yeah, you know, Sundance it, or something. Yeah, had it had a, had done the festival tour. Had a big reputation. Everyone was talking up its hot new star, um, and that you know it had this really powerful feminist message and blah blah blah. It was a real indie darling, I guess, at the time. Because yeah. we had um, the, from like the the very early 2000s, 2000 to like 2006, something like that, there seemed to be like at least one high profile like indie movie that came out and just captured it. Like Sundance um, at Film Festival seemed to be on a hot streak for just getting something, a little something like Donnie Darko in 2001, this in 2002. We had Little Miss Sunshine, uh, Garden State, all these ones that have got cult followings and they just kind of broke into the mainstream a little bit more than your average indie movie. It was quite a quite a nice little run for, for indie movies at that point. And we got introduced to a lot of interesting talent. And as you said, this is the the feature film debut 
for Michelle Rodriguez, who has obviously gone on to have a lot of success and general fame because of Fast and Furious franchise and um, being in the Resident Evil movies. And now she's involved in Avatar movies. Yeah. Um, but I, I you we were talking quickly off, off, off air before we started that one mm. thing you sort of said that resonated with me because I, I did watch this about a week and a half ago because mm. somebody works in retail and couldn't record last week. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, so I got a little, I had to sort of catch up on a bit. This film really feels like a film from the early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah, it like, it's like very rarely do you see, I think, a film, or, or maybe it happens a lot, but I've only just started to notice mm. that films from that age, that kind, really are starting to show some age and mm-hmm. they're really starting to feel like they're from a different era. You know, yeah. very standard ones if you see like you have a teen films like the American Pies of a time. Yeah. Stuff, the haircuts, the fashion, the music kind of really stand out, make it stand out as a as a 90s film or an early 2000s film. Like you one of your favorites from Justin the Kelly. You know, a, a classic if there ever was one. Um <laughs> this one is not so much the music and the fashion though. That's there. Um but it just I don't know the way it's shot, the, yeah. the tropes, the the it feels it screams. I'm an indie film from 1999. Yeah, um, it's it's like there's there's moments where you, it they'll be filming a scene and it just for a split second loses focus and comes back again. It's like yep, they're working on a budget and they were really working on a budget. This is kind of this bit this this project had been banned. Let's just stop. We've done it again. People might not, what, not know what this movie is ah, about. Well, we should probably talk about what the film's about. Yeah. Um, Diana, without her father knowing it, trains as a boxer and achieves impressive success, blazing new trails for female boxers. Hmm. Diana is played by a debuting Michelle Rodriguez in her first feature film performance. Yeah. It is directed by Karen Kusama, who's hardly a household name, mm-hmm. um, but has done some interesting stuff since she did the Aeon Flux film um and a lot of tv uh in the uh ensuing years billions mm-hmm. holton catch fire the outsider which is a great show uh, man in the high castle so uh she's kicking around if she's not exactly jennifer's body there's a film that no one talks about anymore oh shit yeah i hated that fucking movie <laughs> I, that. I hate diablo cody as a writer i really do i really don't like her the only actor i think you'll recognize in this film apart from michelle rodriguez is the character of sandra guzman her father played by paul calderon i'm probably pronouncing it wrong i'll, I'll apologize in advance he is that guy who's in that thing um, I was looking at his film credits here. I'm like, he was the guy, he was in Pulp Fiction for about 10 seconds. Um, oh, I'm looking at his, yeah, he, he's been in He opens a door and he goes, yeah, um, this is, uh, my name is Paul and this is Queen Yol. Um, so <laughs> I haven't seen that film dozens of times. Um, <laughs> he's, 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 he's had a lot of credits. You'll, you'll, You'll be like, oh, he, that guy, yep, I've seen him in stuff. But it, otherwise, it's it, it it's all about Michelle, and it's Michelle's film. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. This this um this is very much the birthplace of Michelle Rodriguez in her career. Not not just um, this is her debut. This is her breakout role. This absolutely captures 
pretty much every role that she's ever had where she is physically strong, usually angry, dominant, powerful woman. And she always, to to the credit of the production of this movie, they purposely wanted to have a Latina. And because it's a different spin on, or it's a, it's a different interesting social focus. And she is, she always comes across in all of her movies, every single one, she always is, it feels like she's very proud of her own heritage. And so there's so much about every character that has been um, in the public eye that she's been in, in this movie, everything kind of stems from this role, I feel. It really does set a, a tone for her career. And, and it. I think what, what prompted the idea to, to do this film was we, she, of course, was in Widows, yes. our last train film. And I felt like, I think maybe we both felt like she showed a little bit of vulnerability in that role, which we, mm-hmm. had, we do not see from Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, and what made me think of it is I think she has become a bit of a one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a very, very fine actress who does what she knows yeah. very well. But I don't think she steps outside that comfort zone very often. And that's, you know, I mean, she makes a shit ton of money, I'm sure, from most Fast and Furious <laughs> movies. So why would you? But yeah. it's a, but it, it would be nice to see her step outside that comfort zone. And I feel like this is the film where I think really I come back to again and again and I see her performance is, in his film is, is almost a virtuoso performance. Like this film, like we said, it popped up on the radar because it was an indie darling, had all that festival buzz. But if it didn't star Michelle Rodriguez, if it starred a lesser actress, yeah, it just would. I think it would have uh, disappeared without a ripple. Yeah, it's all about Michelle, and I think she shows quite a bit in this role. I mean, she she is playing a very stereotypical uh, Michelle character in the sense she's sort of uh, we meet her at the start. She's she's angry. She's disenfranchised. She has inc- she's incredibly cynical about her life and everybody in it. She has, I would argue, very low self-esteem, I think. And she yeah. her natural instinct is to solve all problems by using her fists. Um, and she's always expelled for school from beating the shit out of a girl who insults her friend. Um, and, you know, she, she sort of stumbles across this idea of, of taking up boxing up through her brother, who is reluctantly attending yeah. boxing classes at a local gym. She goes to pick him up. And you can almost get a feel from that first one. She almost starts, she's almost um, intoxicated by what's going on around her in this gym. She looks, it's like, it's almost like she's stumbled into something she can actually believe in. And that sort of grows over time as she really starts to find herself and her feet in this sport, um, if you can yeah. call boxing a sport. <laughs> well, at that, at that point, especially, um, for for women in the sport of boxing there's very few and so it is the genesis of female boxing really in in more popular culture i guess it's interesting it's i don't think female boxing i I wonder if it's really come as far as we might have hoped it had in 20 years i think boxing i'm by no means a boxing aficionado. Mm. Um, I feel like it's gone backwards in the last 20 years in terms of prestige in the sense you've got, I don't know if you saw, but Jake Paul, a YouTuber, is fighting some very famous boxer yeah. in the early, early next couple of months. And like, yeah, it seems like 
when I when I think of uh, physical sports and females, I instantly go to UFC. And that's where you think about um, Ronda Rousey and some of the other people who have kind of broken through the social zeitgeist and just people know about them. Whereas I don't think I could name a female boxer. I know Muhammad Ali's daughter or granddaughter was a boxer for a while. And I remember she made some headlines for a bit because, you know, she was Ali's yeah. um, daughter or granddaughter. I'm not probably than granddaughter at that point. Mm. Um, so, but other than that, you're right. I don't think there have been any, I don't feel, I mean, it, but please, I mean, there's a couple of um, yeah. AFLW players in Australia who have actually done their bit in boxing as well, which mm. I think can cross over with sports. Um <laughs> But yeah, you've, it's, it doesn't. Feel, I feel like boxing as a whole has less significantly less cachet than it did. It feels like it's more of a novelty thing in a way. Maybe it's gone more towards the UFC. But you're right, UFC has really broken that down. Whereas, well, I remember when UFC came to Melbourne, Ronda Rousey's fight, I think, was the main event. I mean, yeah. she is still a household name. I mean, I, if you, I don't know anything about UFC. I don't know yeah. any of the other bo- fighters except I still know Ronda. And likewise, I think that's transitioned, in, whether it's a sport or not, into professional wrestling as well. Um, even if you go back 10 years and look at what female pro- pro- professional wrestling was. Bra and panty matches. Bra and panty matches, evening gown matches were a thing. Yeah. were basically titillation. Whereas a couple of years ago, they headlined WrestleMania with Ronda Rousey and a couple yeah. others, um, Charlotte Flair and um, what's her name? The other Becky one. Becky Lynch. Uh, Becky Lynch. So, I mean, I know, yes, it's not real. It's not really a sport. It's, it, you know, it's scripted. But... In, in 10 years, they've gone from bra and panty matches to headlining the biggest yeah, you know, the biggest event in, in professional wrestling and arguably one of the biggest events in professional athletic sport type things in the world. Yeah. And and whereas it's almost a, it's almost their main attraction at times. Yeah. It's better than the men. So that, that was what I was thinking while I was watching this. That, um, it, it would have been an interesting time for a character like Diana to have entered that world. And yeah. you know, maybe she would have ended up somewhere like UFC or... Uh, I think she would have done well in the USC because she didn't take any shit. No, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, y- you're right. Like it certainly was. Um, it's it's interesting to see that attitude now, 20 years later. Like, oh, girls boxing, what's the world come to? You know, like <laughs> it's the most crazy thing in the world that a girl wants to box. I mean, like, like I said, I don't think female boxing's come that far, but yeah, I think it would be totally different now. I don't think it'd be any question of it. Oh, you want to be a boxer? Maybe she wants to fight in the UFC. Cool, whatever, but you know, it would yeah. be completely run of the mill stuff today. Yeah. What did you make of um uh, her relationship with her family? I, I felt like that was potentially also one of her really strong parts of his film. I really loved it because it was not your typical kind of familial relationship that you would get in this kind of movie in an indie movie. Um and the the way that the the relationships evolve over time, her relationship with her brother and the very, very broken relationship she has with her father really well, really played well. And again, I, I still maintain that um, the father and brother, it was, um, hang on, they were um, uh, Paul Calderon and uh, Ray Santiago um they do admirable for what the, for what they're given but it's always michelle's show 
every single scene she's in she is the power on the screen uh, physically emotionally mentally she's always there bringing it and layering so much on like um she's just sitting down talking with her brother just it's just a short scene where he's kind of saying oh who's this new guy first comes love then come, then comes marriage and just the way that she shrugs it off it's like oh, it's not like, not like that man and there's she layers so much more into her use of pauses and her not making eye contact with him and things like that it's so telling and then compare that to scenes where she's beating the shit out of her dad i think it's the strongest scene in the film for me um Mm. and at the start of the film she's really terrorized by her father who refuses to allow her the money that he pays for his son's boxing classes she asked for a a similar amount as an allowance which he also wants to use on boxing classes he says no yeah. Um, and you know, he 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 really have a really, as he sort of said, broken relationship. But yeah. but you really feel like he he terrorizes the two of them. But you can, I feel like it's a, a really wonderful, um, almost a signpost on her journey to believing in herself and mm-hmm. um and some self confidence. When after a while of doing her her boxing lessons, she actually literally overpowers. And beats the shit out of him a little bit um, yeah. in the kitchen, and actually holds him down. And you said, "You're mine now." Yeah. And um, again, to say, I feel like Paul Calderon was really strong in this role for, mm. for you know uh, a guy who's pretty well known. There was a real look of fear and terror on his face, which um, uh, mm. it was a nice cathartic scene because yes. you know it's probably not uncommon that you know there are men out there like that in the world, and fuck you if you're one of them. Um, but you know, uh, the, that moment where the abuser realizes he has no power over you have yeah. no power over me, the, the Jareth moment, right? You know, um, <laughs> so we couldn't call it the Jareth moment, that sounds like a, a bad emo band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, he, he, that moment where he suddenly realizes his control has completely evaporated over his children and they yeah. are stronger than him. And the fact that she's a girl probably really contributes to his humiliation as well. Yeah. Um, I love that scene. I rem- it was the one scene that I remembered from this film vividly 20 years later, even before I saw it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For anyone who is curious and might kind of go, oh, is this like Rocky with girls? No. Absolutely not. This is not. This is a far more personal um, kind of young adult's journey of awakening. I think it's a little grittier than that film, which is hard to believe yeah. because Rocky was fairly gritty in its own way. Yeah, especially it, the first one. But this one feels more real. Like it yeah. feels. I think it's. I'll give credit to the film. Like I said, it does show its age a bit, and yeah. it does have some indie pretension in there. Yeah, um, but. It, it does feel produce a world that feels lived in. That gym feels like it's a hundred yeah. years old. You can yeah. feel almost how cold the wind would blow through the cracks in the windows and the doors. Yeah, and like the crappy motivational signs handwritten on. Yeah, just a lot of pieces of cardboard. Yeah, kind of falling apart and stuff like that. And the old notice boards with like ancient notices on them. And you know, mm. the place feels run down and dilapidated mm. and depressing. Yeah, and it's just the kind of place you would expect to um, find um, in a neighborhood like that. Sean wants to know why can't you donate? I don't uh, know what I'm donating to, Sean. So oh, yeah. I, that's on Twitch um, because Sean, we haven't set that up. 
but uh, if you want to donate, I'll I'll look into that for next uh, <laughs> next episode. But uh, appreciate the watch, thanks, dude. That and, is, that is, there you go. I think you're asking us for money. I'm like, yeah, I, think I, have any. I mean, you seen the show? Seen we, what we, can do. Donate. we just choose not to <laughs> we don't have any money please don't take, take my wallet um, going, going um, back to that point of realism i think um the the sets that they use for it are um are great and they do very much feel lived in and you kind of wonder on this budget they probably did just go to the local gym. gym that yeah. was beaten up but also the the big difference between um the kind of style of storytelling very telling in the trainers as well so um jamie tirelli who plays hector soto who's um michelle's trainer he is a great character and it's become a bit of quite a cliche that type of um curmudgeonly um old old guy who's just seen it all and now he's just gonna train one no, last Burgess Meredith. Burgess yeah. Meredith thought, you know, like exactly. Um, and he was he was kind of a caricature. Whereas Hector Soto is just this honest guy who's just training. He's been training for a long time and he slowly he's he's not this kind of he's not the only one who's sort of like, mm, yeah, I'm gonna train this girl. I see something in it. It's like sure i'm probably yeah, not going to be able to train I'll, I'll take the money i'll take yeah your money. I don't really think you should but uh, it's, but, it's but a very it's, genuine character he's got a bit of an arc as well and he's sort of yeah she he gets she gets quite a bit out of the training with him but he gets something out of it as well and like there yeah. is actually almost you know i think it's very loosely there but you could look a little deeper and almost feel like a um you know a, a father-daughter style relationship a more healthy father-daughter style relationship started to form a little bit towards him. And maybe I'm going a little bit too deep there, but a more healthy version of one that she didn't have with her father between the two of them, he almost becomes the prime male role model in her life. Mm. Uh, and she doesn't have many. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the, the location work of this film is, is, is immaculate and they've done very well to, to find the locations they have. And it really helps the film. Um, mm. I don't think he, I don't remember a whole lot about the music. I feel like that kind of helps. Um, um, it didn't actually feel as dated as it might have had if it had, you know, like the latest Limp Biscuit song uh, <laughs> during the training montage, you know, like rolling, 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 um, where she's running up a step somewhere. Um, <laughs> that would have been so bad. That would have been cool. Someone needs to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think look, it's a nice little film, and like it's interesting. I you really did make me think of it. I, there was a, it was of its time, mm. and I'm struggling though to really give you a concrete thing about it. It makes it of its time, but we mm. don't see anymore because I yeah. don't think we see films like this anymore. Well, I th I think that kind of sports movies that I think generally this would probably be. Lab labeled under just because of the the driving force behind it of boxing that's generally kind of become quite a positive cash cow they they seem to go be quite successful overall so you don't really get much in the way of 
indie movies doing sports movies anymore because there's that opportunity because it's that trial uh trial by fire kind of like that difficulty overcoming uh difficult barriers and boundaries and all of that sort of stuff which is good oscar bait and it's got a lot of potential so they kind of get whipped up into those b-rate movies and low a-grade movies where it'll get like angel sponsorship from George Clooney or Brad Pitt or something to bump it up into the 30 million, $40 million bracket. And suddenly it's, it loses the. the Film like fighting with my family. Yeah. Which the WWE funded and Mm. hence it has the rock and Nick Frost and yeah. People you recognize and, um, a little bit more of a budget. This film was made on a million dollars. Yeah. Um, so that's the smell of an oily rag. We haven't used that one in a while. Uh, uh, <laughs> we need Mel. to get that on a T-shirt so we can say, it's the T-shirt. Hello yeah. to Mel, who's watching on Twitch. Thank you for uh, tuning in for a little while. We are talking about Girl Fight, the 2000 Michelle Rodriguez film. Um, how did you, I mean, I, I was glad to have seen it again. I, I think it did reinforce for me, as I sort of said from the start, I think Michelle Rodriguez is an actress with a great deal more um, capacity uh, and range than we see from her on a regular basis. I would love to see Michelle Rodriguez doing Shakespeare. (laughs) Okay. What Shakespeare? Lady Macbeth. That's not bad. That's not bad. You know what I would want? Um, they did a kind of gender bend for the role of Prospero in a, uh, I think it was like 2014, 2015 film version of The Tempest, where they got Helen Mirren to play Prospero. I think she could be a fucking cool kind of like hard as nails, beaten up wizard <laughs> like like that. I think she'd be pretty cool in that. I think okay, could- I, I just had like a really terrible idea that I think absolutely should happen. Okay. Um, we, we talked earlier about the post-Trump, um, uh, the post-Trump age of filmmaking. Just like that Bob Dylan film they did before, for people, women. We have we have to do a Trump film where we get fifteen different actresses <laughs> all to play Trump at different stages of his presidency. And I think Michelle Rodriguez needs to be the person who gives goes up the elevator and gives a speech about Mexicans not sending us their best. <laughs> That is hilarious. Um, That's a free Muggle, idea. I want to see it happen. Muggle Mel just wrote in uh, saying, typecast as the tough girl in all of her movies. That is absolutely true. And while she does that really, really well, I think that, you know what? I'm surprised that she hasn't done any voice acting work because her voice is identifiable. For one thing, she has got a recognizable voice and she knows how to use her voice. It's on display in girl fight like i talked about before she knows how to use silence and pauses and um accentuate specific words and things like that she she would be really interesting um, she did call of duty black ops 2 she did some voice work in the smurfs oh my god um, yeah i'm not counting that that's not a movie <laughs> which apparently is revoltingly terrible game yeah people play that um yeah uh, but yeah, no, I, I I think she's she did get Halo Two and Driver and Crew Crime Streets of LA 
So she's, so she's doing she's doing video game voicing, but I'm thinking oh, you mean like cartoons and stuff. Yeah, like she she appears in a Pixar um, movie or DreamWorks or something like that. I feel like because she has definitely got that ability to be fun and bubbly with her voice. She can be really serious. I would love to see her take on a villain role in an animated movie. Yeah, though I mean I I'd be down with that. I forgot she was in Alita as well. Um, look, sure. I mean, oh yes, she. I mean, I guess it's 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 a bit of a, a golden a golden handcuff situation for her. Mm. Like, I, I can't imagine how much she gets paid for Fast and Furious now because those movies make a squillion dollars every one of them, like a billion yeah. dollar. These are billion dollar films, the Fast and Furious films. Whether mm. I like them or not, they make a lot of money. Um, and I imagine she doesn't. I, mean, I don't know if they work together as a cast, like. You know, like the Friends cast and the Seinfeld cast were like, no, you know, we worked together and they all got a shit ton of money per episode. Yeah, I don't know if the stars of those films worked together, but I have to imagine she's going to be getting millions and millions per, per film. Probably, Surely. you know, upwards. You have to think if they're grossing a billion, she'd have to be getting over, you know, 10, 10 million a film or something. I don't know what oh. her, her, Surely, surely. She's, she's one of the integral family members of the franchise. You can't, I mean, I know, you know, you've got Vin. Vin and her kind of define the series, really. I mean. They do now, yeah. Rob kind of does a little bit, but he's more of a Johnny come lately. Yeah. Um, so she, I get that it must be very tempting to just go, mm-hmm. you work for six weeks a year um, doing the new Fast and Furious film, drive some cars, and mm-hmm. then go live on your private island for a while. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, she doesn't really need to do much else. Yeah. Um, but I would love it if she did. I'm just like, it's a little bit like The Rock. I feel like The Rock's got more range when we see in his film. Um, at least he does comedies. You know, Michelle really doesn't do that either. No, no. she. It feels like she takes herself very serious, but in this one lane. <laughs> anyway, but she did do Machete Kills. Props to her for that. Um, <laughs> I am very curious to see where you're taking us next. It's your turn for, uh, I think, two weeks now because I took yeah. us to Widows and I took it to Girl Fight. Ah, um, uh, Mel just popped in saying apparently she got 30 million for the last one, apparently. So, yeah, good luck to her, right? I mean, she's a key part of it, yeah, They're making absolutely. all the money. Absolutely agree, absolutely. She she earns it for sure in all of her movies. She does a lot of her own stunt work, from what I understand. She puts in the effort, she shows up, she always, um, you can always see her working hard. So, yeah, um. So I am fo- going on for the chain movie. We are following Jamie Tirelli, who played the um, Hector, the, um, the the trainer. We are going to be going to the 1993 classic movie. Now I think it's fair to say, Carlito's Way. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Now I haven't actually seen Carlito's Way, so I figured it's a great opportunity for me to tick off one of the iconic Al Pacino movies. And um, there, we've got a lot of possibilities to go for Al Pacino, John Leguizamo, uh, Louis Guzman. Louis Guzman for the win. He'll take us to Pokemon. Viggo Mortensen, I didn't even realize was in there. And this is not mentioned, in fact, it's directed by a bloke named Brian De Palma. Never done anything. Never did anything else. Did a couple other films, Carrie, The Untouchables, (laughs) you know. Blowout Scarface. Scarface. No one ever heard of that one. Um, so yeah, um, I, I'll be. It's it's a tr- it'll be a treat. 
yeah it's a good one yeah. as well yeah so i that that's where we're going to be going next week um and i'm excited to see it for the very first uh, time and, and yeah it's um sean penn in there at, um at some of his some of his best work as well mm-hmm. uh and i'm just checking now to see where we can see this film because it maybe, is not apparently on streaming but it is available to rent and buy on your usual Google's places and fetches Very good. Very good. So we can actually watch this film legally for a change, which is what we yeah. do like to do. Mm. And for those who do not know, such as myself, uh, Carlitos Ways, a Port- Puerto Rican former convict just released from prison, pledges to stay away from drugs and violence despite the pressure around him and lead on to a better life outside of NYC. It's it's a, a great film. Um, yeah, it's Al Pacino. Um, probably, I'd say Eddie's peak. Mm. I mean, right Ellen before Ryan, he became a cliche of going, "What are you got?" Yeah, that's it. Oh, she's got a great ass. <laughs> um, shall we move on from Jordan and Kalito's way? We've got stuff we've actually watched. Both watched, as we said at the start of the show, um, and we can actually have. A Where conversation. Should, we should we go to Soul or Wonder Woman? Let's, let's take the, the big new release of the last few weeks. And I actually, I imagine you, like me, got to go to a cinema of some sort. Mm-hmm. New release movie. What a treat. More. Um, Wonder Woman 1984. Wonder Woman 1984. So this is the follow up to Wonder Woman, which introduced us to a fully realized version of Wonder Woman, which we have been teased at in. Uh, Batman and Super Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice and Justice League, and this was her first standalone movie directed by Patty Jenkins and starring Gal Gadot. That was a very nice little origin story for Wonder Woman with uh, Chris Pine in there as the love interest slash uh, slash co male lead of um, Steve Trevor's. It had David Thewlis and a cornucopia of quintessential british actors because it was set during world war one um so wonder woman 84 picks up 1984 and it's a really weird one it's an odd little film i just like to start out because what i'm going to talk about in the next little while makes Mm. it sound i'm going to have a lot of negative things to say about this film Mm. but that's to say i didn't hate this film Mm-hmm. I would not put. I've seen people out there saying it's the worst DC film ever, which mm-hmm. I think is is really really off point. I mean, yeah, it's clearly they've not watched Suicide Squad. They've not seen Suicide Squad. It's nowhere near as bad as that. For me, it's nowhere near as bad as Dawn of Justice, which I you know we had we disagree on this, but I hated it. It's not as bad as Justice League. It's probably on a par, maybe not even not as good as Aquaman. I think, um, yeah, but. That's- uh, it's, so it's not the bottom of a pile, but it's mm. in the bottom it's, half. It's, it's dangerously middling. It, it's it's in the conversation, I guess. Mm. But I I thought it was okay, mostly okay. Um, so before we go any further, I th- I think the only plot description on IMDb kind of sums it up perfectly in its one of its real flaws and it it just says uh this was by uh anonymous apparently uh rewind to the 1980s as wonder woman's next big screen adventure finds her facing two all new foes max lord and the cheetah and that kind of sums it up because 
What's it about? Oh, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it, it, it has a number of problems here, okay? Mm. One, why is it set in 1984? Michael Mel fell asleep during Uncle Man at the cinema. Look, I, I it actually popped up in my Facebook memories this morning of me going, Aquaman was silly, but it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was kind of about where we landed on the show, was it? it was too long, it was kind of silly, but somehow they held it together. Yeah, they were spinning a lot of plates, but none of them completely dis- uh, died and ruined everything. Yeah, I would like to say, though, speaking of Mel, Mel came and saw Birds of Prey with me um, <laughs> last year in about January or February. It wasn't as bad as that film, Mel, so it's not as bad <laughs> as Birds of Prey. Either. That's, in the bo- that's, that's below this film as well. Mm. Um, you sort of mentioned in the first thing it sort of says there, this flashback to 1980s. Why is it set in the 80s? Yeah. I think to play absolutely no role in the story. It has no bearing on the story. No. It's just so they can have some funky outfits. Yeah. Um, and I, it for me, especially with the opening uh, action sequence being set in, uh, in, the, in the mall, it kind of felt like it, it was – they chose 1984 because it was a slight byproduct of the success of Stranger Things, and it's that period setting. Is it like okay, sure, but it didn't need to be 1984. Why though? I mean, uh, probably also worth mentioning this film has been sitting on the shelf for probably about a year. It was originally oh, going to be released nice. in the back end of 2019, yeah. then they decided to kick it forward to June, I think, so that they. With, not because it was a problem, depending who you ask, yeah. um, not necessarily a problem for film, but to, to potentially get a bigger box office in summer. Yeah. And then obviously the, uh, okay. the unknown the unknown virus of uh, the uh, of unknown origin um, <laughs> sort of shut that down. Um, yeah. So it's kind of it's gone for a two or three release date. So that Stranger Things thing might have made sense in 2019, but it sure is yeah. in 2021. Yeah. But story-wise, there's no point. Um, and you know, I worked out what movie this reminded me of in the the way that there is not really an overarching story, um, but it's just about character conflicts on different levels. There's the physical and then there's the emotional side. And it was Christopher Reeve's Superman 2. Yeah, I mean, there was some of that there. I mean, um, to, to get a little bit, well, let's get a little bit of a plot. A little bit of plot. We can, we can look back around about because what you say does make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, we have Diana working at the Smithsonian in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, she meets one of her coworkers, who was played by Kristen Wiig, mm-hmm. um, who was playing Kristen Wiig, uh, doing Kristen Wiig. Yeah. Um, and in the story, pops the uh, character of Max Lord, who is like a. To, uh, sort of a think like a Jordan Belfort type character, you know, he does yeah. TV commercials about how to get rich stuff, and he is aware of a an artifact currently in the possession of um, Kristen Wiig, which um, I don't know what's the, the wish stone or something. Yeah, um, and basically, if you touch, it's like the monkey's paw parable, you know, if you yeah. touch the stone and make a wish, it will grant your wish. But in doing so, it will take your most valued procession back yeah. off. Um, we, it is never explained, by the way, exactly how Max knows that this he, she has this stone, where it is, what it is, how but, it exists. No, that that is illustrated throughout it because um, the stone was seized during because 
the because of the robbery and it had Maxwell Lord's thing there. He had been researching it and the intonated uh, connection that they never actually specify is that he hired these guys uh these guys or was in them was had was buying this and it got embroiled into that why he would know that it had been taken by the fbi to the smithsonian to be identified which doesn't really make much sense as to i don't know if the fbi would really do something like that it's like you're holding in evidence for quite some yeah those guys yeah he wants to get anyway off off kristen wig so he can become he's not very successful he's Mm. in a lot of debt his business is failing Mm. he basically charms his way into kristen wig's office uh steals the stone and is able to start making wishes um yep. along the way both Kristen Wig and um and Diana make wishes without realizing exactly what they're doing but the stone actually works Kristen Wig's being I want to be more like Diana yeah um which includes walking in high heels um and, and the powers uh, of Wonder Woman kind of <laughs> kind of and Diana wishes for Steve Trevor to come back hmm. uh and in doing so her most valuable possession starts to sort of creep away being her superpowers Mm. so throughout this film we have a wonder woman who is progressively becoming less powerful Mm. why exactly the stones doing it over a period of time don't know because reasons there's a script we did it too um so so that's a bit of background to say that's sort of our plot from here and max law becomes more powerful as diana is losing her powers and as kristen is discovering as in this barbara aka kristen wig a.k.a. Cheetah, mm. is starting to discover her powers and become a threat to the world and, and Diana. So as you as as my illustrious co-host sort of noted, this does feed into that Superman 2 territory where hmm. where, where Clark Kent gives up his powers so he can be with, with uh, Lois Lane. Yep. Except that film was really good. Yes. Like really fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> And this, they actually use that in an interesting way, and yeah. they don't here. This does not go at all in their direction. They choose a weird way of getting Chris Pine back into this. Um, it's because it's not actually Steve Trevor's who comes back. It's his soul. Occupies the body of a random guy. Yeah, of, of, a, of a random dude, but Diana only sees him, whereas... It, I guess everyone else sees this other guy, and you think was a strange choice. Yeah, that was that was a really really weird choice because they have brought back Steve Trevor's through time because he is the primary love interest or the the quintessential love interest of Wonder Woman in the comics. And yes, he was in World War One, and suddenly he's in modern day. There's interesting story to tell there, but you would need more than one movie to truly get into that and tell it well. But I felt, I felt like that was a kind of a weird, creepy thing to do. And for her to so willingly kind of go, yeah, this I'm okay with this. I'm okay to be entirely deluded and not... And a random dude. Yeah. I mean, good luck to him. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, mean, I, I sometimes have this thing. I've talked before in the show about my friend Del, who mm. is a scientist, who if something doesn't make scientific sense in a movie, ah, he's out. doesn't matter how good the film is. He's mm. completely withdrawn from the film. And I'm starting to develop these tendencies where if something happens in a story and it doesn't make sense, I just can't get that out of my head. And I'm like, 
Who's to say he doesn't have a family? Yeah. Who's to say he doesn't have a job? What about his? What if he's supposed to be having drinks with friends that night? Instead, he's shagging Gal Gadot. I mean, like, hey, you know, uh, lucky him. But what if yeah. he goes? Um, you know, like, are his family are people going to be looking for him? What's going on? Because because it seems like Steve Trevor's takes over his body for quite a while, and then at the end of the movie, we meet this guy again, and. Maybe it's maybe I'm I'm reading myself wrong here, but if I lost days of time and suddenly found myself in the middle of a riot when nuclear missiles had just gone off, I'd have a few questions and I'd probably be in therapy every day to try and work out what the fuck happened. There's an episode of X Files in that. That's probably he probably became like a UFO conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I lost time. I lost the week. <laughs> I've got this weird mark here. It's slowly fading now. It's like, yes. I was abducted by a weird, gorgeous alien. I um, <laughs> had that way with me. Um, but yeah, and, uh, it's it's a strange one. What they have, I dealt with him. Mm. It was very odd, and that kind of bothered me. Yeah. Um, the other part that really bothered me, um, I guess, to cut ahead in story a little bit. Um, if you, uh, we're gonna, well, I guess from here, we're gonna probably start to get into some spoiler territory. I guess. Yes. But very- if you haven't seen it yet. And we haven't. We probably should have done this at the start. Um, <laughs> you haven't seen it yet, and you want to see it. Maybe skip ahead twenty minutes. We'll probably be done by then. Um, it, it um, you know, we we probably or you can just keep listening, and we'll save you the trouble. Yeah. Um, uh, and one one of Max's early schemes is to basically bankrupt one of his creditors mm-hmm. and basically take control of a lot of the United States's oil reserves. But next, he goes to Egypt to try and convince a sheikh there to basically hand over his oil reserves to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Diana and Steve decide to follow him to Egypt. And how I do this was the second thing that really pulled me out of this film and really bothered me for the rest of it. They, they take a jet to Egypt, which doesn't sound ridiculous on the surface, except that to find the jet, Diana takes him out the back of the Smithsonian Institute, where they have fully prepped and fueled jets mm-hmm. available for anybody if they want to borrow one for the weekend, apparently. Like, mm-hmm. I'll be fair and say I haven't been to the Smithsonian, but I'm kind of betting they don't have fully fueled and active jets just hanging around the place. Yeah, no. Second part is Steve's like, oh, my God, I would love to fly one of these, and he gets in and does that. I mean, yeah, like, a, a, a crack pilot from World War One gonna be a wee bit lost at sea in a modern jet fighter jet which I, they look very complicated there are lots of not dials and but he gets in he's like oh that thing was switched there must turn it on and what about it being they, did, they didn't even try to go for the fish out of water joker so like okay here we go uh sorry sorry okay nothing like that they they just played it straight Oh, of course he's a, he's a pilot. Pilots are pilots, right? Aviation hasn't changed in the preceding 70 years, has it? I mean, <laughs> it's just the same. But then uh, they're getting tracked by radar, which, uh, they, which Diana conveniently forgot about. And she goes, oh, I forgot. I know how to turn this plane invisible. Let me just do that. Ah, it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, which didn't bother me. I mean, she's a superhero. She can do superhero shit. But the worst part was they managed to fly this shit from Washington, D.C., Egypt. That's On a really, one really tank of fuel. Tank of, I mean, I was speaking to somebody you know very well the other night, and her response was, "Well, maybe they refueled somewhere." And I'm like, "Yeah, 
Maybe. <laughs> Pull into a United Station. So like, hey, fill her up, please. And this is it. I was actually trying to do the songs in my head going, I feel like it's a really, really long way to Egypt from from um, from Washington, D.C., and I feel like the range on a fighter jet's not going to be anywhere near enough. And as soon as I got to my car, got out, the movie was over, I was <laughs> Googling. If they had that kind of flight distance, and because you don't see them refuel either, and, you know, the, the jet's stolen from the US government, so they're probably not going to be able to land anywhere normal. So... If jets had that much fuel capacity, they would not need aircraft carriers. Yeah, uh, well, I, 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 just for the record, it's 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 about double the longest range of any fighter jet in history. <laughs> they fly from Washington DC to Egypt. It's a long, long, long way uh, in one little fighter jet. And, and I'm sorry, maybe you think I'm being picky here, but this is the kind of thing that gets me thinking. When if the film does something that makes no sense. It kind of pulls me out of the whole film and go, well, hang on a second. How can he fly that? Hang on a second. How can that jet fly to Egypt? That's and it. You get to go, you know, I'm just supposed to buy that. I'm, I, I don't. Hey, that, that's the thing. In, in the same movie, they introduced the invisible jet, which is kind of one of those cheesy, iconic elements of the Wonder Woman character. But they also got her flying. And it's like, okay you've in- introduced this and now it's like, yeah, she doesn't need that anymore. It's like, okay. okay. What? Come on. They're, they're just shooting themselves in the foot and they, ha- they even, they, f- they bundled the first one. And I think they kind of realized it's like, you know, ah, you know what? It's not going to sit great. So we'll put in that dialogue that um, Steve Trevor's has about, oh, it's, it's just about feeling the wind. It's like, you're in a fucking cockpit. You are not feeling the wind. Sorry. And it is entirely different to the kind of um, planes that you were flying. It is going to feel entirely different. It is not the fucking same. If you're feeling the wind, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, so it just, it, it's like I it can't put stuff in there and go, oh, it's a superhero film. It doesn't need to make sense. Um, yeah. they, the, the fight scene in Egypt is okay. We learned a little bit more about that, about, um, Wonder Woman's Diana starting to lose her powers a little bit. That's where it really starts to become obvious. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of ridiculous in parts, but it's a superhero fight city is what it is. Then yeah. we sort of get the second part of this, which is how do they get back to the United States for the MacGuffin scene with the, the ancient Mayan book? Mm-hmm. Um, they just transport. All of a sudden, they're back in the United States. No explanation about how. They and they do it super quick because she she makes a phone call to Kristen Wiig's character and then the next scene is like, oh, we're making our way back now. So like, it's not just round the corner. Uh, it's, it's really not. <laughs> uh, it really isn't. It, it's a it's a long way. I do. I, I I you know um I, I sort of gave everyone an idea. It is um a twelve hour flight time between Cairo and Washington DC. Now, obviously, we didn't say which part of Egypt they were in. They could have been in another bit. <laughs> it looked like a big city, so I'm guessing it was probably Cairo. Anyway, maybe I focused too much on this, and no one talks about it in the film, about how in any of the reviews, they never talk about the fact that the plane can't go that far, and I'm like, I'm sorry, it really bothered me. Yeah. Um, 
And then we get into probably this is the week. This is the really rough part. The stuff we talked about right now is probably the strongest part of the film. Yeah, it gets worse. The third act is a shocker. Yeah, and it. So, mm, the villains of Maxwell Lord and Cheetah in the comics are extraordinary. The the there's um. It was, I think it was Grant Morrison's uh, run. I think it was Grant Morrison. There was like in the late eighties, early nineties, there was kind of a reboot of Wonder Woman and the story of Wonder Woman and Cheetah being the, the main villain. It was awesome. And it kind of goes into reasons why they're uh, consistently kind of clashing. And it, it was this well thought out story and, conflict of characters interesting characters why they were butting heads why they were considering each other the villain to their own hero it was brilliant um and yet in this it's sort of like yeah so she gets the powers of wonder woman because she says i want to be just like diana it's like okay fair enough she gets strength speed all of that sort of stuff and then she morphs into a cheetah because she makes a second wish saying i want to be an apex predator when someone says apex predator to you you generally don't think cheetah think lions tigers yeah. bears oh my um you don't think cheetah no i mean yeah so maybe, why maybe, did she become a cheetah it made a bit more sense if like you know she's like in the plane and they're flying and there's a magazine maybe a national geographic magazine next to her and it's a cheater on the cover. Yeah. And she's looking around going, oh, I want to kill her. I want to be an Apex Predator. Yeah. Oh, like they're so that. majestic. Anything like that. And she points to the cheater on the cover of a magazine. That made, but they didn't, yeah. That's all they needed. Uh, and uh, that could be to one of the other weaker points of the film. The CGI uh, is yeah. pretty bad. It, was, it had been sitting on the shelf. They, I can't believe that they didn't go back to it and go, okay, let's tweak this. Let's tweak this. And I remember there was um, dialogue online before the initial, um, the original release date. They're saying, oh yeah, we're um, going back. And the reason why we haven't shown the full cheetah is because we want it to be good. We want people to be impressed by it, which very much slaps off. Yeah, everyone was pissed off when they saw the Ivanus looking apocalypse from X-Men Apocalypse. And every single time the CGI has not been finished for a trailer and they rushed it out anyway. Understandable why they'd hold that back in trailers. But they had a, an extra year and that's the best they got. And, and we, we the little bit of the bit of context. Dyer flies to an island where she's going to take on Max Lord and mm-hmm. you know take down his evil plan to give a wish to everyone in the world and get lots of power. Yeah. Um, and Cheetah has sort of aligned herself with Max Lord, and there's a fight scene between Diana or Wonder Woman and and Cheetah outside as she arrives on this island to try and defeat Max Lord. And I was wondering if it was me because I saw this at the drive-in. Mm. Not always the you know dark, and especially with some idiot riding his uh, shooting his lights into my eyes. So, but maybe it was just me, and I wasn't seeing it very well. But no, everyone has said the same thing. The scene's set in darkness. Yeah, it's very difficult to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only explanation that seems to be doing the rounds as to why you would host that scene in darkness is to cover up the shitty CGI. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, you, what you can see, it looks very average. It looks like there will be lots of gags yeah. about um, Cheetah looking like a, a leftover special effect from Cats. Yeah. Um, it's not that I, bad, but it's still... We, we, we may be getting bad. a butthole release soon. You never know. <laughs> um, release the butthole. <laughs> you make an excellent point. Is this film's been sitting around for a while? Mm. Word on the street is early um, test screenings weren't positive. They had to do reshoots. Um, why would you? Why would you not completely have a year to redo? You could do this scene from scratch. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know anything about special effects, but surely you can do one CGI scene. Yeah. Or, or clean it up somehow, but. It, it looked horrible. That was like the worst scene yeah. in in the film CGI was. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it was like maybe they were trying to put that whole thing of the predator knows how to use the the shadows. It's like that that that's in in their native environment where the color of their spots and fur blends into the tall grass and surroundings not a tropical island and not necessarily at night and they didn't really do anything with that and the initial inciting incident of why cheetah starts fighting wonder woman was actually pretty good it's a solid reason i don't want to give up this new power that i've got so i can't follow your lead here because i don't want to give this up that's a reason to have an argument a little bit of fisticuffs okay and then it's like, okay, so what, why, why do you feel the need to go further? And why are you still fighting when you're happy with the rest of the world? Everything in the world being destroyed? There are literally hundreds of nukes being just wished into existence and flying. Come on, they, they, they don't even try to have some form of conversation a debate or interest or intrigue about it this is where i come back to my superman 2 analogy the fight scene in the um uh in the in the the solitude. yes and it's like the the differences of zod and um superman and even you're not even better um which one is it superman 3 where he wishes away his powers and then you've got that that iconic scene in the in the diner where he, uh, Clark Kent gets beaten up. That's then... Superman as well. Yeah, so it's it's that, but they it just didn't work here. If you're right, they've really drawn on some tropes here. I mean that 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 well, she had her powers back by that point in time. So and she had the stupid armor. And you no point did she actually have her powers gone completely. No, that would have been an interesting story. Would have been. Diana as a as a mortal, mm-hmm. um, and you know, yeah, we would have gone, yeah, we're just doing Superman too. But hey, I always say it: if you're going to rip somebody off, rip off the best. And Dick yeah. Donner's Superman Two is an acknowledged masterpiece, yeah, um, of of of, super, of um, comic book cinema. So you're going to rip it off, do a, do a, do a good one. And you know, that would have been an interesting angle. Was like, how is Diana going to, you know, tackle this foe with without her? power she can have to use her smarts and her you know uh, her moral compass to some degree maybe um but yeah it, it just kind of like when you didn't you got to go in you got to go all in and you sort of went half in and got oh she can bleed now and she's not quite as strong as she was 
Yeah. But you figure that there will also have truth in that does everything. Um, yeah. And you're sort of talking superhero tropes. Just to take a step back on the Kristen Wiig's character, she's basically a half-assed Michelle Pfeiffer from um, Superman Returns. I mean, yeah. it, how many times have we seen the character before? Yeah. And look, that's not Kristen Wiig's fault. I thought she did what she could yeah. with with the material. I, I think the takeaway here, without going into the spoiling the entire end, but here's a trick. Here's a, here's a hint. She wins. Um, <laughs> I think the main problem with this film is the writing. It's really badly written. Yeah, it feels hackneyed and tropey and come together and. No disrespect to the work that Kristen Wiig does in it, or even Gal Gadot or, or Chris Pine, and particularly Pedro Pascal breathes as much. He tries to Frankenstein monster all of the words that he has been told to. I was fine. I thought he did what he did well. I mean, I've heard he, he, did, he did great, and I. it was a really interesting take on the Maxwell Law character because the Maxwell Law character is not that. No, I think you made a talk that he was he was inspired by Trump, which yeah. I didn't see at all in this. So he's like, oh, he's almost a sympathetic character, really. He's not entirely awful. I mean, his motives are awful and his methods are awful, but he has redeeming character. So I didn't get the Trump thing at all. Yeah. Kind of reminded me more of a a dollar store Lex Luthor. Yeah, yeah, kind of like the. Like a guy inspired by Lex Luthor, but didn't have the brains, didn't have the money, and was trying to kind of cheat his cheat and bullshit his way to to the same levels of success. But that's not the Maxwell Lord character. There's a lot. There's a lot more going on with Maxwell Lord that's actually quite interesting, and he's had some interesting interactions with Wonder Woman as well. There's it's it every single story in this is about a personal one this is you know we're given the the basically the olympic games of themyscira at the start with a very young um diana prince and she cheats to nearly win and gets stopped and there's the life lesson of you know the truth will out blah 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 she just never win yeah and Kristen wig um her personal journey of wanting to be more than what she actually what she currently is pedro pascal not wanting to be a loser those are all actually good nuggets to start a story none of them come to come together none of them really feel fulfilled or viable or bookended in any comfortable way there's nothing left over so like okay so this was just another episode in the life of wonder woman Okay, she's learned a lesson next week on Wonder Woman. It, it, the, the, the other point here is that this film completely undermines the law of that we set up previously in Justice League that the mm. world doesn't know Wonder Woman. That Wonder Woman's basically being under the radar. Oh, since. She uh, she uses her her tiara to break all the cameras, so it's fine. That's fine, and like the fact that she would have been on TV um, fighting things um, and saving the world. No one's got memory like that, Travis. Um, I think it's like, I mean, the, the first one wasn't written by Patty Jenkins. It was directed by Patty Jenkins. Yes. Uh, I believe the first one was written by Zack Snyder as well as um, uh, Alan Heinberg, Zack Snyder, and three more credits. Mm. Um, 
Jason Fuchs and, of course, the people who actually created the character. Mm. Um, obviously, Zach didn't get near this one. This one, I think, is written by Patty herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Patty doesn't have a great uh, history as a writer. Not to say she's not a fine director. She did well in the first one. So yeah. Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns, mm-hmm. um, who didn't write the first one. I have criticised Zack Snyder a lot for some of his stuff in the most last 10 years, but I, I think it's fair to say he's a better writer than, 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 than Patty is because this film... And this isn't even touching on a number of other things that really bother me, like the the male characters in this film all being like, hey, baby, hey, hey baby, come sleep with me, baby. All yeah, the only, re- the only redeeming male character is Steve <clears throat> Trevor's and the Random most handsome guy at the end. Yeah, and the most sympathetic one is kind of Maxwell Lord, which would have been a really interesting stance to have for your main villain if you had decided to go all in on him being a villain and not make it about a fucking wish. And I'm sorry, I hate fucking movies like this. Prince of Persia, Sands of Time was a supreme guilty party in this where it's like oh the whole movie the last thing major thing that the main hero does wipes out everything that we just saw it makes it entirely pointless this you think growing up bruce wayne clark kent they probably have recollection of oh yeah you remember that fucking crazy moment where we all nearly died from suddenly appearing nuclear missiles in the holocaust and everyone was going crazy and there was the oil thing never mentioned no not at all it's and then to, to have them all just disappear in the beautiful confetti stop using that as a get out of jail free card people have repercussions don't be uh, and it- and it, it sort of leads into now, are we still in a DCEU? Does it still exist? <laughs> no, um, we're getting Justice League Snyder Cut sometime soon, so mm, maybe we're going to have three Batman films this year, I've heard, um, or three different Batmans at least. Um, what's Is Aquaman in a DCEU? Uh, you know, no, are we making, you know, it's, they, you, I mean, look, I mean, it, I, I know, Marvel aren't always perfect, but you know, at least they have consistency. Yes, throughout that. There's somebody like George with fucking post it notes on a wall <laughs> with a timeline going, Nah, you can't make it in 1984 because we already said mm-hmm. nobody knew who the fuck she was, and that would completely undermine everything that happened in Justice League. You mm. can't have your funky 80s outfits. Set it in the present day. This film could have been set in the present day and that would have been fine. This could have been easily been set post-Justice League. Easily. Easily. There is no narrative reason why it is 1984. Because it doesn't doesn't go into the reasons why she she entered the world in World War I and then no one had heard about her up until Dawn of Justice. If it had filled in something about that or reasons why she chose to disappear and purposely kind of delete herself from the timeline or anything like that. If it had gone into that, yes, there would have been a reason to have it set in the past. It doesn't. So, okay. We kind of, I, I think that ties a bow on it because that's kind of where we started. This is yeah. why it's set in 1984. It didn't need to be. Mm. There are a lot of very odd choices in this film and mm. it's a deeply unsuccessful film as a result. Mm. It's not awful. I mean, it's, no. 
not re- reprehensibly bad. No. And I think the reasons for that are Gal Gadot is a wonderful Wonder Woman again. She just yeah. lives a role. Yeah. Um, I everyone, everyone on screen does a great job with what they've what got. They have. But it just is not the sum of its parts. It and it, they're just not given anything meaty to work with. And yeah. I go back to I go back to the thought that apparently mm. the studio in the first Wonder Woman film didn't want the machine gun scene in it. They didn't like it, and they wanted it taken out. Okay, essentially one of the most iconic scenes. Yeah. I'd argue the most iconic scene in the film. I I wonder if they maybe had their hands on this as well because. They don't make good choices. They don't make good choices at Warner Brothers. They make bad choices with each other. Yeah. Now, we've talked about Wonder Woman 84 enough. Let's go on to the other new release that we both watched, Pixar's Soul. Uh, Indeed. And uh, this is the new uh, film, as we said, from Pixar. It's landed on Disney Plus, I think, on Christmas Day. Yeah. Um, A musician who has lost his passion for music is transported out of his body and must find his way back with the help of an infant soul learning about herself. Hmm. So I think that's wrong because he doesn't lose his passion. No, for... that's right. You don't recall him being out of time. I mean, yeah. we meet the character of Joe. He's very much a, passionate about jazz. <laughs> he is a middle school uh, music teacher, yep. but I guess an aspiring <laughs> jazz musician outside of that, who one day is randomly given an opportunity to audition for a well-known uh, jazz musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, by a former a former student, mm-hmm. and he absolutely fucking nails the audition, and basically gets hired for the gig that night. In his excitement, whilst walking home, falls down a manhole. Uh, falls down a manhole cover, yeah. and is essentially deadish, mm-hmm. uh, or at least on life support, kind of brain right? dead, brain dead. But you know, he's basically sort of says at that point he is transported out of his body yes. to the great hereafter or the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he is so, he was so excited to actually have, he finally got his opportunity to potentially chase his dream of being a jazz musician. He is determined to not give up on it and to somehow return to his body and his life. And in doing so, finds his way out of a great hereafter to the great before, mm-hmm. um, where, um, souls, uh, have their personalities, sort of, you know, um, personality traits added and defined before they go Find down the spark and, and, and inhabit a new a body and, and live a life. And um, that's that's a very high-level <laughs> overview of where we start. The voice work here, J- Jamie Foxx uh, voices Joe. Tina mm-hmm. Fey voices uh, 22, which is the infant soul who Joe is um, tasked with mentoring to mm-hmm. find uh, it's it's I'm going to use the, the pronoun it's because mm-hmm. you know it does have a female voice, but I would imagine yeah. a soul before it's born doesn't have a gender. Um, well, they do they do explain that is it like oh you sound like one and um, you know twenty two morphs into Joe morphs into an old person and things like that. So like that, that's fair. It's it's an interesting construct world where things are just whatever they want to be. <laughs> uh, other well-known people in here, Questlove voices Curly, Questlove being a musician in the Tribe Called Quest, and I think he's on one of the Tonight Shows. He's the band leader on one of them. Um, Angela Bassett's in there as the uh, jazz musician Dorothy. Um, mm-hmm. Graham Norton, the uh, yep. British talk show host. Uh, and Richard Ayoade. Uh, that, and that was it for me. Like, as soon as, like, you know, sometimes you just hear a voice. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's Moss. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, if you don't know who Richard Ayoade is, please look up the IT crowd. 
please look up the IT crowd. Forget the fact that the guy who created it's a piece of shit. It's mm-hmm. a great TV show. And he's a fine director in his own his own right. Um, and it was lovely to hear him pop up as one of the counselors in there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, ah, oh, that's that's Richard Arrow. And there's a some completely distracted every time he was on scene on yes. screen. This film is directed by Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers. Pete now, Doctor, Pete Doctor, he has never done anything before. I was going to say, if we have a conversation occasionally about directors who are on hot streaks, if we were talking about directors who are on a hot streak now in their career, mm-hmm. I think you could argue Denis Villeneuve is on a hot streak. He yep. hasn't done anything bad. Depending on what you thought of Tenet, you might yep. say Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think anybody would say Pete Doctor, but they absolutely should. I think Pete Doctor is on the greatest hot streak in cinema but I think we've seen it for a long time. So, so what's he done? Yeah, since 2001, he burst onto the uh, onto the screen with his feature film debut, the animated classic Monsters, Inc. Then his next uh, full feature was 2009's Up. Then, huh? he, then he did uh, 2015's Inside Out. And now he's done 2020's Soul. So I every point out, he wrote the original story for Toy Story, yeah. Toy Story Two as well. Mm-hmm. He wrote the story for Wally. Yep. Um, this, this guy. guy is yeah, he is. He's probably the reason why. He's probably that secret source as to why Pixar still make great movies because he is, and Soul is prime example of this i mean every single movie that he has directed has had except for maybe monsters inc um all of them have had much more adult genuine um serious relationship conversations and personal development conversations and things to talk about and things to say beyond just being that stereotypical animated family movie and this this movie is about the afterlife and the before life and the meaning of life and so many of those big fucking questions that we challenge ourselves with every fucking day and he makes it in this engaging way that makes you think about it after the after you finish watching it and being thrilled by it it makes sense throughout the whole thing he has his set of rules that his movies adhere to and he sticks to them he's a genius uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean, I, I think I posted on Facebook after this. There's something going on down at Pixar. Hmm. There's, there's something going on. They've sold their soul to a, dev, a devil of some description, a la Robert Johnson, the blues musician. I mean, they <laughs> don't – I mean, I'll put my hand up and say there have been a couple I haven't seen recently. I haven't seen Coco, and there was one that came out, yep. I think, last year, which I haven't seen. But – they don't make bad films. I mean, they haven't had a car crash of a movie. I mean, if Cars 2 is the worst thing your studio has ever put out, then, geez, what's some kind of studio? Yeah. And beyond that, yes, they started out doing, we think about Toy Story. It was really a, almost a proof of concept that, yeah. that CGI animation could be done well um, and what a classic that is. But as you sort of noted, they've ever evolved beyond Look, even Monsters, Inc. is a wonderful little film. But as mm. you say, they've really evolved now to be actually telling very complex stories, very yeah. mature stories about the nature of existence. And you can still take your kids and they're not going to be bored um, and they're not going to be grossed out. I mean, these films are all, 
still very wholesome in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and so at the same time, I was I showed, I I actually demanded a few of my friends, demands is the right word, watch this film. And they absolutely were blown away and loved it. Mm. Their kids blown away and loved it. But you can have two different age groups sit for a film like this and be blown away and love it mm-hmm. for completely different reasons. Yeah. That is incredible filmmaking. And let let's just let's just point out there is not a single studio production company in the working film industry that has this much of a successful run starting in 1995 with toy story then going on to a bug's life toy story 2 monsters inc finding nemo the incredibles cars ratatouille wall-e up toy story 3 cars 2 brave monsters university inside out the good dinosaur finding dory cars 3 coco incredibles 2 toy story 4 onward soul not a flop and, and not even it's not a flop i mean films can be terrible films and still make a lot of money like bad boys um, bad boys for life was the highest grossing film of last year yeah. um doesn't mean it was any good but not only are they not flops each one of them is in both i would argue a very high quality film for yeah. its time and incredibly influential mm-hmm. in its own way well, well most of them anyway right i mean the vast majority of very influential films and very high quality films yeah. um whereas it's kind of a gold standard of animation uh what well, absolutely is the gold standard of animation now it's insane um how successful um these films are and i think as i to come back again i think the most impressive thing for me is you can tell a story here now which is essentially about death Mm -hmm. and um i i tell my friends i don't actually have any idea what uh, is okay for kids and what isn't apart from you know pulp fiction's probably not um <laughs> not if it was remade with muppets and they didn't use any naughty words hey look uh, apparently um the great gatsby has come into the public domain now and there's been talk of remaking it with the muppets um so there is um, not a single movie that could, would not be bettered by having muppets remake it. um so i use a website called common sense media which a friend of mine i used to work with put me onto. so it's actually quite a helpful one if you if you have children or you're around children and you're a little bit like me and you don't actually have any children you're like I was watching Soul and I was like, this is actually a little bit dark in parts, right? It, it might be, you know, some of the themes are a little bit on the darker side. I'm like, how old is old enough for this film? And Common Sense Media actually has the parents and the kids rating about what they think. And so they would say with Soul, it's got given an 8 plus uh, rating for them as opposed to, I think, Inside Out a little bit, a bit before that. But I mean, if you go to Inside Out, it's a story about about becoming who you are and and almost at some points your emotions and mental illness to some degree as well i suppose is in there and again this one says six and up according to common sense media which i find a a good measure for this kind of thing so i mean these are it's they're telling great stories but they've got stories they're important stories as well and Mm -hmm. really important i mean I don't want to use a word, but important lessons for, for young people who are watching them, I think. Um, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but um, I grew up with Sesame Street um, when I was a kid. I don't know about Ed in the UK as much as it did. Yeah. But I think I think there's a great example of, of television which did a very similar thing mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, I don't know if it still does. I think it's fairly progressive now. Mm. Um, so, but... Um, 
I, I just, it's that uh, I think that um, maybe it's probably because of their success that they don't lose money. They've never had a flop. Mm. That they now have complete creative freedom now to. Basically, are you, are you being interrogated by the KGB or something at the moment? I said too much. Ah. Find the Jade Monkey before the next full moon. Ah, uh, we found the Jade Monkey. <laughs> um, but it, it's they have this complete freedom now. They go. Imagine if you're if you you know you took Soul. I want to tell a make a children's animated film about death to DreamWorks. Yeah, <laughs> you fuck off. Um, well, that's that's the thing. I think the the secret thing that I think um, Pixar have managed to do with their movies is what the Henson Company did so well in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, where they were unafraid to do things that would most likely scare younger kids, but not do it in a "you're gonna have nightmares about this." It was just they 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 did things they put their the heroes of their stories in dangerous environments so it's it's okay to be scared you can fight through you can be the hero whereas this they they're kind of taking a more metaphysical approach with with the pixar movies and going yes death is scary but it's okay to talk about it yes it's it's bad when you just can't control yourself because angry so much but it's okay to talk about it and start dialogues with it and they're using them as learning tools and that makes it approachable it's um approachable for adults and kids because it's presented in this childlike wonderment way but it's these topics that kind of feel more like they should be in the domain of adult conversation. You shouldn't talk about the notion of death and the afterlife of the child. It definitely be something that people encounter, young people encounter. And, um, and you make an excellent point that I have to imagine, again, when neither of us are parents, but hmm. if you did have a young ki a kid and you wanted to actually have a talk to them about death or hmm. inside out being about, you know, mental health and, and feeling your emotions and that kind of thing and coming of age and, um, what a great kicking off point for a conversation yeah. it would be to sit down and walk soul with your 10-year-old, you know, 8-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever, and say, okay, well, what did you think of that? How did you, that make you feel when this happened? And mm. did you know that that happens in real life? And how would you feel if grandpa was all of a sudden journeying the great beyond? You know, we all go, to, you know, blah, blah, blah. What a great way to start that conversation. Yeah. I have to imagine it's not an easy conversation to have with your kids. No, absolutely not. I mean, but being able to kind of go, oh, do you you remember um, in Up? It's like, oh yeah, it's like you you remember how how sad um, the old man got when his uh, when his wife died. It's like, yeah, it's like, well that that's what that's what your grandmother is going through at the moment. You can bring it into and use it as a learning coaching tool for these things, and they do it with so well with so much stuff. It's all over the place. the The idea of like looking at Wally, which is probably my favorite Pixar movie. Mine too. A, 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 an entity that f builds its own ca uh, personality by being alone and having one friend and wanting to reach out and meet people and greet people. And I was very 
very much as that person when I was a kid. I was quite often alone and being in a little village in the middle of nowhere. It's like, oh, I want to go out. I want to see what the world has got to offer. I've got this box that shows me the singing, all singing, all dancing, wonderful world out there. I want to experience that. And I, I latched onto that as a character. And then suddenly having this alien entity of Eve come down and sort of like, that's, yeah, okay, cool. I, 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 I can connect with that and I can I can imagine that so many now generations of kids go through the same thing and you can look you can these are perfectly safe movies to be able to like still showing Toy Story 1 yes visually it has aged because animation has become so much more nuanced and better quality but the story behind it that idea of being replaced by whatever's new might God, that is relevant. Ageless from my best friend doesn't hang out with me anymore because we we went up to the next grade. And now he's hanging out with other people. It's like, well, just think about Woody and Buzz. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I'm in a new job and they they don't like me because I'm different. It's like, eh, just think about Woody and Buzz. <laughs> you know, I think you you make a fine point there. It um, if it, the message they inject into their films mm. is strong and and it, it managed to do so without being preachy yeah or cheesy or saccharine like a lot mm. of Disney films do kind of have that or what? saccharine yeah uh, you know always be yourself and you can do anything mm -hmm. um kind of vibe to them which pixar is kind of saying the same thing that's kind of like the the cool kid you know, who you want to listen to yeah. you can do anything instead of the dweeb you know what i mean like um yeah. two other things i'd like, like to quickly uh, talk about with soul uh, one being a little heavier, um, that I, I think it, it, what I really enjoyed, the themes they injected in here, is about you don't always have to be chasing your purpose. There's a whole mm -hmm. focus on, the, oh, I've got to find my purpose. This is my life's purpose. This is what I'm here to do. And that's, you know, and, and Joe is sort of like so set on this idea that I'm here to create music and be a jazz musician and mm -hmm. it's everything I've ever wanted to do and all I ever wanted to do. But... I think the message at the end of a film was it's okay to actually just live your life and live a good life along the way doing worthwhile things. And it's okay if you don't actually have that purpose or you're not living what you think that purpose is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's not all about your purpose living. You, you're okay. It's okay to just live your life. Right. Mm. I mean, I, I think it's a fair point because Gosh, how many people do you think we know who are living their life's purpose? I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. I think we have a mutual friend who went out of their way to try and live their life's purpose mm. fairly recently, which involved a fair bit of schooling. Mm. It kind of had a bit of a rude shock once they've actually started doing it, mm. um, which actually kind of mirrors Joe's experience in the film. Um so, you know, I, I enjoyed that message because I think that's an important one. I think there's a lot of pressure put on kids. Yeah. You got to find your purpose. You yeah. mean if you don't have one. Yeah, that's – and th th yes, granted, it is great to seek out your purpose because it's not – it's so great to be able to say, I'm passionate about this, I'm passionate about that. But there is a difference between passion and purpose, and there is no purpose. <laughs> yeah that's that's my my thought of it is like purpose is tangential you 
Are you a good person? Are you enjoying your life? Are you not hurting people? Are you doing good work? In his case, yeah. he's a teacher. Yeah. What, I mean, and I, I mean, we've had this conversation many times. What a desperately undervalued profession mm-hmm. being a teacher is they get crap money and no respect. And then people wonder why good people don't become teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful purpose. He's actually living a very, very worthwhile life mm. as it is even without being a jazz musician. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's, there's definitely a an element of be careful what you wish for in mm. there. Yeah. The other thing I'd like to quickly point out, and this is something that we should have all seen coming if we know anything about soul. Mm. But yet again, I found myself halfway through the film going, geez, what an interesting score this film has. What a wonderful score this film has. I'm like going a couple of points on it. This is great. I wonder who did the score for this film. And I had actually completely forgotten that I knew who'd done the score for this film. Mm-hmm. It is, of course, the Academy Award winner, Trent Reznor. Um, <laughs> and this man himself, a man on my T-shirt right here, covered in mud uh, <laughs> at Woodstock 94. Um, and Atticus Ross, uh, who, of course, won the Oscar for The Social Network. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they did the um, they did the score for, for Soul. Um, and... Mainly, though, I think they did the score in the before, the great before and the great after. I don't know, but they did a lot of the music on Earth. Mm. But what a departure for the guys from Nine Inch Nails. But that's kind of, you look at, let's just look at Atticus Ross um, music and the the themes and the ideals behind the music that are created still kind of fit into the kind of experimental element of nine inch nails and the you know there, there'll be people who might listen to nine inch nails and go oh it's just lots of screaming and lots of bass and it's all very aggressive and angry it's like hey listen deeper it's kind of when you listen to a tool, a tool album, you listen to it as from from track A to track Z. It, you go through, and the, there's there's a story being told and reason behind everything beyond just we're doing this to make lots of noise or we're doing this to aggravate you. There's a lot of emotional development in everything that they're doing, and that kind of translates to good accompanying music in movies and like the book of eli um atticus ross did that and the score is really i really love the score that he does in that movie the movie itself is kind of middling it's all right it's not great but the music fits the world and fits the journey of the character so well and it's that i think that's part of what makes them so good at what they do is there's there's always been this kind of cinematic element to the music that they have created as as this really iconic band and as <clears throat> professional composers for the cinematic experience of our lives and it it's 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 an unusual when you think about it and go oh the guys behind nine inch nails did the music in a pixar movie yeah that sounds kind of weird but then when you actually look at the way that they construct the music in Nine Inch Nails, how they utilize and use it, that makes a lot more sense on a mechanical level to me. And it's like, all right, I get it. And especially considering the 
all of the stuff that we've talked about, the meaning in the movie and the journey that the characters have, it just makes so much more sense. Also, if you've listened to anything Nine Inch Nails have released in the last 10 years or so, um, it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense to be doing these kind of soundtracks. Mm. And it's not really a massive departure from the kind of work they do other places as well. Lots of little electronic bleeps and bloops mm. kind of thing. It actually may inspire me to go back and listen to the Social Network soundtrack again because I really do love that. Mm. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a world away. The stuff that they, people remember Nine Inch Nails for, like Closer, the really yeah. loud, angry, medley stuff, that's probably not really what they've been making more yeah. recently more recently it's been soundscapey kind of stuff which as a fan i'm like oh, well that's what you want to do it's what you want to do i don't like it as much as i did the old stuff but i mean i don't know if you know but they actually the nine trent Reza actually had a, a hit record i think either last year or a year before because he was one of his his records was sampled in the old town road um song that was a big hit with like billy ray cyrus in it and stuff Okay. So, yeah. What was that That one in the um, Black Mirror? Oh, um, that was uh, Head Like a Hole, but that was um, re-recorded as I'm on a Roll. Yeah. It's So, yeah, it, it's, I, yeah, it, 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 it's just as a gentle thing, the, the thing that kind of really made Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, if you look at it very basically, kids, Nine Inch Nails, you wouldn't generally mix those two mediums together. But when you look at it, as I say, on a mechanical level and the way that Nine Inch Nails have evolved as well, it makes all the sense in the world. I, I think they're some of the, I think they, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm a huge Trent Reznor fan, but I think they're wonderful uh, composers who do, who do great work. I mean, I really enjoyed their work on, on Watchmen earlier in the year. Um, they were pretty decent in um, uh, Girl of a Dragon Tattoo a few years ago. Social Network's great. Uh, I just think they're, they don't do anything. It's really, they do what they do well. I'll say yeah. that much. But um, it's uh, a nice little, I, I know, it, it, and I swear to God, I had completely forgotten that Trent Reznor did the soundtrack for this film and found myself on a couple of occasions sort of going, this is really interesting music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always seems to happen. And I look it up and I'm like, oh, that was Trent Reznor who did it. What a weird... <laughs> I have such good taste. <laughs> it's, just sort of, it's just sort of weird how, like, even when he's uh, doing quiet, you know, composery stuff, which really isn't typically up my musical alley, mm. um, I can still sort of notice what he's doing. And it's sort of really, um, it's really my kind of jam. Mm. So I think that's two strong thumbs up for, yeah. for Soul yeah. and... I want some of what they're taking at Pixar. Yeah. I'll say for anyone the the one the one group that I would say might have issue with soul is if you are very devoutly religious. Mm. There's certainly no religious overtones it, in this. There is there is no religious overtone to this. And if you are very, very devout in your belief system whatever it is i'm not uh, obviously christianity this is not any any form of the christianity faith but any other faith um you know thinking um basically any of any of the big faiths of the world this flies in the face of that and it just shows you something else um you may possibly if you if you are in that very devout environment 
might not want to show your kid this because it's going to raise some questions potentially. I, uh, I would argue that you should show if you are a religious person, you should definitely show this to your child because I think it'll initiate a conversation for you. And that said, though, I don't think you want to. Yeah, I'm just saying I think you should. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, um, but speaking from the devout family perspective, yeah, is it like no, 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 no. No, Jesus died for our sins, and we go to heaven. That's that's it. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> Ned Flanders approach. Yeah, <laughs> I do all the things, even the, with the ones that contradict themselves. The other thing, Ned, have you actually ever read this thing? Technically, we're not allowed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> by reading this from cover to cover, you have actually forfeited your soul to Satan. What? <laughs> The fact, I think that's, that was a real treat and interesting to see that drop on 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 Disney Plus. And um, I, honestly, I think I would be open to seeing that on the big screen somewhere if it gets a driving release or a release at like um, the Astor or something like that. Just on that note, I am kind of surprised considering Soul and Wonder Woman. I think they actually came out on the same day technically, and Wonder Woman eighty four was the first of the. Warner Brothers catalog to do this simula- uh, simultaneous release of streaming on their HBO Plus and in cinemas. And obviously, situation in America is far worse over here. We were actually able to go to the cinema, but it wasn't stream. Uh, is not available for streaming over here. Whereas Soul went straight to Disney Plus and just completely um, avoided cinema. So it's it's strange how they could have comfortably put, you know, it's a Pixar movie. It's going to make all the money. And I guess they chose it, not to. There's actually a movement in Australia. Cinema owners are actually pushing the government to legislate for mm. cinematic windows. Mm. Because I think, they are, I think the big exhibitors now are seeing which way the wind's blowing. Mm. Uh, that, you know. Obviously, the only thing stopping Wonder Woman going straight to streaming here is that HBO don't have an offering in this market. Yeah, it's all through third parties, which they don't get to control. Um, but it's it's so interesting considering Disney are notoriously aggressive with demanding slots and demanding huge percentages back from cinemas. It's interesting to see that in a market where cinemas are still open and still a viable option... They didn't push it with soul. Um, and also interesting that they didn't charge with extra surcharge, they charged for Milan. Milan, yeah. Which again, maybe that was a like, all right, we tried that and that that failed. That was a mistake. Um if anything, a Pixar movie, and as we noted before, they haven't had a box office or critical response fail in their 15 years of making movies that's the kind of successful horse that you want to back for an unusual practice shall we say because people will buy will pay admittance for pixar whereas a remake of mulan where you don't have a, the talking uh, dragon with eddie murphy's voice that's a little different it's not necessarily a guarantee, mind you, to be fair. Every single one of the live-action remakes that they've made has been a fucking monster at the box office, and it kills my soul a little bit every time. <laughs> I know, it, it, maybe that was an experiment for them to go, hey, mm. can, will we get away with it? 
And I, who knows what they, because I don't know if they actually report this stuff, but they didn't get away with it. They didn't get away with it. And not enough people bought it and they thought, well. It's been an interesting year for Disney Plus because we've had three very different um, pop culture elements on the platform with very varying degrees of success. Soul was an absolute masterpiece of a movie proving incredibly successful. No doubt it's going to be adding millions of subscribers to Disney Plus or at least those seven-day trailers. Um, then you had Mulan doing this unusual pricing practice, which people did not like that uh, aggressive uh, pricing, and the movie was at best middling. And then we had the, we'll put it onto, because of COVID, we'll put it onto the streaming surface, Artemis Fowl based on a very popular children's book series. Um, I'm a fan of that series, and that bombed. It was a disaster of a movie. No one talks about it. It's. I don't think it's ever once come up on the, the front landing page of the Disney Plus for me or when I've walked past and Shay's been watching or anything like that. It's kind of the forgotten stepchild, and it's interesting to see these three different movies from different points in the year and we started with Mulan, aggressive pricing didn't work. Then we had just this dump of we need content on our platform and cinemas open aren't open. Let's just chuck that on there. We know it's not going to do very well. We're not going to market it. Fine. Yep. Forget it. Done. And then we have this masterpiece finish around the same time that they then announce um, prequels to Buzz, for Buzz Lightyear and all of those Disney shows and the Star Wars shows and all of that stuff coming to Disney+. Plus, They have suddenly, I think they've kind of gone, yep, we know exactly how to use this platform for our medium, especially in the COVID world. Uh, and, you know, we're, we were right again. We were on board Disney Plus from day one. We said it would be successful. We oh, certainly yeah. didn't question why Disney, who already owned Hulu, was starting their own streaming service. That didn't happen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this show. <laughs> I don't, never know, why, I don't know why people sign up for Disney Plus full time. I, I was sign up for a week, watch The Mandalorian, and then jump out. Like, I don't, just to watch what? old Disney cartoons. That's it. it. It's nostalgia. That's, that's what they're selling. And that's what people want. They want, to, they want to feel comfortable in this crazy weird world that we live in right now. And for eight ninety nine a month, you get that at your fingertips and you get lots of all the new star Wars, which is so amazing and fantastic. And blah, blah, blah. I haven't seen the new season of Mandalorian. Have you watched it yet? No, I have no interest. I thought you didn't, you went on board. The first season was really good. And I'd hear, but I think I pretty much had the, the big twist at the end of a second season spoiled for me already. So um, uh, I don't. I'll I don't, get around I'll, to it. I'll, I'll get, get around. I'll get to it eventually as well. But I'm like, but apart from that, I mean, I, I mean, other than the occasional Pixar film and the odd, you know, thing here, there, and there dropping, mm. it doesn't feel like there's a lot of first run content going on on Disney Plus right now. Well, there's not really on any. Um, platform and all of the new content that is coming out the new series suddenly they're all changing their platform process of instead of dumping a whole season they're going week by week because they need to draw it out for as long as possible 
That's it. Oh, uh, well, I was. I, I, I mean, it's, you, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But I have that many bloody streaming services now. I might as well just go back to playing for fucking cable. It's um, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. But uh, this is the life. We do this for you, dear yes. listener and yep. viewer, so you don't have to. Yep. It's um, why I watch Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> somebody's doing a public service. work, but someone's got to do it. Um, how are you feeling? I reckon this is long enough for tonight. I think it's been long enough. Yeah, we will save um, our other topics of conversation for next time. Um, then, George's been watching Twin Peaks, and I'm very excited to hear what he thinks of the third season because I never got around to watching all of it. And uh, I'll be talking about a new Alex Gibney documentary called Totally Under Control. And of uh, course, but- we will be going on with our chain movies to the classic Carlitos Way. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. And thank you so much to uh, Mel and to uh, Sean for dropping in on the conversation there. And, yes, we will – I'll look into seeing about donations. If and you if you'd really like, want to, give if us you'd like to drop into the conversation, you can do that. Uh, yeah. Follow the Fry Brain Productions Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, George is actually pretty good at letting you know when we're going to go live. It's usually Wednesday evenings in Australia – uh, so work that out your own time frame box. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is good night from me. Good night from my uh, people who are determined to get me to answer the question. And good night from Travis. Good, good night. night. Good night.